Let us again read the word of God as found in the book of Ephesians, the second chapter. Ephesians, the second chapter. It's on page 1157 of the Pew Bible. And probably my efforts to say some things about this passage will be more useful to you if you turn in one of the few Bibles and be looking at the text with me. Our focus will be on verses 20, 21, and 22, but the NIV properly begins the paragraph at verse 19, and so follow as I read verses 19 through 22. This is God's holy word. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. The Bible sometimes speaks to us in lofty, idealistic terms without discussing the actual on-the-ground realism of Christian experience. When Paul comes to the second half of this marvelous letter to the Ephesians, When he comes to chapters 4, 5, and 6 of this letter, he will write in more realistic terms. He will say, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And he'll write that because he knows that the unity of the Spirit is a fragile blessing and that the unity of the Holy Spirit is often spoiled by our selfishness, our thoughtlessness, Sometimes our party spirit, those of us who have been Christians for decades, in fact, it probably doesn't take decades for this to happen. If you've been a Christian for a short time, it's probably happened to you. You know, you've experienced what it is uh, to have those places and seasons seasons in which uh, your fellow believers were not expressing idealistic Christian love to you. And then we'd look back on those occasions, those places and seasons in which we have certainly failed to give some idealistic expression of Christian love to other believers. The Bible doesn't hesitate to speak to us realistically. But the verses that end Ephesians chapter 2 give us a profound statement of the ideal. And it's good and wise for us to often bring together idealism and realism. I often think of the way the Apostle John does this at the beginning of 1 John chapter 2. He says, my little children, I write these things to you so that you will not sin. Very plain statement. Do not sin. Next statement, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous, idealism and realism. 
But the verses 20, 21, and 22 that will engage our attention give us a marvelous statement of the ideals. Let me acknowledge the help of an excellent commentary on the book of Ephesians by Dr. Harold Honer. Because of the word temple that's used in verse 20, Dr. Honer gives this outline of the three verses that we'll consider. He says we have the temple's foundation, verse 20, the temple's formation, verse 21, and the temple's function, verse 22. Now, I'm going to make use of both the word temple and church in the way I will slightly alter Dr. Honer's three points, uh, because this temple that our passage speaks of, it is indeed the church universal that the apostle is writing about. And he uses the word church in chapter 1 of Ephesians. He uses it again in chapter 3. And in Ephesians chapter 5, we have that marvelous statement, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But first of all, then, think with me about the, the foundation of this spiritual temple of the church. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ himself the chief cornerstone. Now, remember, my friends, that our efforts to understand Scripture uh, will be more effective if, if we remember that the writers, the human writers of Scripture, were not verbal robots. Sometimes when fundamentalists start talking about the inspiration of the Bible, you could get the impression that uh, Isaiah or the Apostle Paul uh, went into some kind of trance and uh, mysteriously had their hand moving across a parchment. Uh, that, that is not at all the case. And some have pointed out the fact that in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, I believe it's chapter 3, Paul says this, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. And here Paul says the foundation is that of the apostles and prophets. Well, someone could uh, uh, get picky with Paul and say, Well, make up your mind, Paul. Uh, what's the foundation? Is it Christ or, or is it uh, the human authors of Scripture? Well, again, Paul is not a verbal robot. And in writing of the Corinthians, who were showing their carnality, their immaturity, uh, by choosing their favorite preacher, and one saying, well, I follow Paul, another saying, I follow Peter, or I follow Apollos, Paul had good reason good pastoral reasons, good practical reasons for saying to that congregation, there's no other foundation except Christ. But here the apostle has equally good reasons for pointing to those men that God gave his word to, apostles and prophets. Now, when Paul goes on to say that Christ himself is the chief cornerstone, He's obviously underscoring, magnifying the fact that Christ has a place that none of the human authors of Scripture have. Uh, he is uh, uniquely the chief cornerstone. A German scholar named Jeremiah argued that Paul is referring here to the capstone that was often put in an ancient structure. 
And uh, when that was done, uh, that stone at the very top of a structure uh, would be made to reflect the shape of the whole building. You look at the capstone and you get a small picture, as it were, of what the whole, of what the whole building was to look like. And Jeremiah argued that we should understand uh, cornerstone in that way. But I believe the NIV gets it right here in translating chief cornerstone because Paul has in view that key foundational stone that stabilizes the entire spiritual temple. One commentator says this in the early 1900s, uh, pardon me, the early 1990s. This is a relatively recent date in terms of the world of archaeology. In the early 1990s, archaeologists discovered five enormous stones from the foundation of the Jerusalem temple. The largest stone measured 65 feet long, 11 feet high, and 14 feet wide, and is estimated to weigh 570 tons, end of quote. Now, you probably don't have your calculator right now, so let me tell you, 570 tons is over 1 million pounds. Chief cornerstone indeed. And if there was any possibility of missing Paul's burden here in verse 20, such a blunder would be inexcusable because remember that Paul is taking language here from Isaiah 28:16, which reads this way. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious stone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be dismayed. Apostles and prophets used of God to give the revelation for God's people through the entire present age, but Christ himself, the cornerstone. That's the foundation of this spiritual temple of the church. But secondly, note with me the formation of this spiritual structure. Look at verse 21. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And I want to underscore three things in terms of what we should understand from verse 20. Number one, it's clear that union with Christ is essential in understanding Paul's doctrine of the church. Verse 20 ends with... Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone in him, in union with him. And please understand that my choosing here to refer to Paul's doctrine of the church is not to suggest that there's some contradiction between Paul's doctrine of the church and what we, did, what we would deduce uh, concerning the church in statements made by Matthew or by John. I'm not suggesting that at all. Uh, sometimes you will hear people say, yes, yes, Paul wrote such and such, but Jesus said, well, that kind of distinction can sometimes imply some fundamental contradiction between 
the apostles, and Jesus himself. That's not my concern. My concern is to underscore the fact that the Apostle Paul wants us to understand the central place that being joined to Christ always has in the way we understand the church. I, uh, it's okay for me to reflect on the Westminster Confession when I come here to preach at First Presbyterian Church, isn't it? Well, I found myself doing that this past week, and if you look on page 6, no, pardon me, 863, if you can grab one of those red Trinity hymnals, page 863 I want you to note the careful wording of paragraphs 4 and 5 of chapter 25 of the Westminster Confession. And I'm drawing our attention to this because it, it reflects such pastoral balance, such sensitivity in the way we think about the church. The Catholic Church, the Church Universal, has been sometimes more sometimes less visible. And particular churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure, according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered, and public worship performed more or less purely in them. The purest churches under heaven. Now, of course, that means your church and my church, right? The, pure, the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will." The confession shows a tremendous pastoral spiritual balance in the way we understand the church. But union with Christ is the foundational reality. Secondly, the formation of the church is a divinely affected reality. Verse 21 again, in him the whole building is joined together. Now, the verb, it's actually a, a participle, and allow me to say a passive participle. I'll, I'll explain that in, in a moment, okay? The verb that Paul uses here, it's one word. Uh, some translate it grows. It is six syllables. It's a six-syllable Greek participle. And yes, I practiced saying this six-syllable Greek participle when I, was, when I was all by myself in my study with no one else to overhear me attempting to pronounce this six-syllable Greek participle. And I've decided I will not afflict you this morning with another effort to pronounce this. But here's the point. Here's the important point. 
Paul is referring to the formation of the spiritual house as something outside of us. Something is accomplished, something is done from outside the church universal. Done how? Done by whom? Only by the God of grace. That's the point. God, God is forming this church. He is the one who, by his spirit, is making certain that the church exists and that the church will grow. So union with Christ is is integral to the way we understand Paul's statement here about the church. The formation of the church is a divinely affected reality. Thirdly, this divine formation of the church is an ongoing process. Paul says, again in verse 21, rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. There is a process. Everything is not finished all at once. It is is an ongoing endeavor. My friends, remember, remember when we talk about the growth of the church, we are talking first and foremost about what God does, but... God uses human instruments, doesn't he? Uh, No one should look at this passage and say, God is forming uh, this church. Um, He'll get it done uh, regardless of uh, whether we send missionaries, regardless of whether we uh, witness the gospel in our workplace, regardless of whether we ever invite any of our neighbors to, to come and join us for public worship. God will see to it that the church is built. God will see to it that the church is built, and some of us are going to have the privilege of being used in the process. We can pray. We can give of our monies. We can find our spiritual gift in the fellowship of the church. I remember a number of years ago when there was a tremendous focus on finding your spiritual gift. Maybe some of you remember a book by a California pastor named uh, Ray Studman. Uh, It was called Body Life, a very popular book, sold millions of copies. And and, uh, churches that I was in back in those days uh, would have these classes set aside to finding your spiritual gift. And what I discovered is that most people went to those classes and did some kind of uh, examination of the list of spiritual gifts and then walked out still confused about what their spiritual gift is supposed to be. Here's the best way for us to, to approach it. Make ourselves part of the church. Begin to serve in every way we can. Begin to look for a need, an opportunity, regardless of how small, regardless of, of how insignificant. Seize Seize every opportunity to serve in the church as God helps us. And then in the process of serving, it will become evident to us and evident to others what our particular spiritual gifts are. And I believe that kind of mentality about spiritual gifts is borne out by a study and application of Romans chapter 12, verses 13 and following. God is building the church. We are privileged to be his instruments 
in that process. So we have considered the foundation of this spiritual temple of the church, the formation of this spiritual temple. But note, secondly, the function. The function. Verse 22, in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, in the context, the you too is a reference to Gentiles, you also. Uh, If you go back all the way to verse 11 and read from verse 11 through verse 19, it's very clear that Paul is concerned uh, to discuss how God takes uh, these two kinds of people that had been, in one sense, divinely separated. You know, the covenantal nation uh, that we read about in the Old Testament it wasn't that Moses or Abraham decided, hey, let's, let's get out of here and have our own thing going. No, it was a matter of God calling Abraham, a matter of God commissioning Moses to institute the laws at Sinai. God himself formed the old covenant people of God. But now, in this glorious season of what we call the new covenant, God is joining together Jew and Gentile. And Paul is concerned about that formation or that function of this universal church. And what is the function? Look again. To become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. What is the function of the church? It is not, it is not first and foremost to please our human ears with the beauty of song and the beauty of instruments. That's not first and foremost God's concern. First and foremost, for any church in any time and place, is for it to be a dwelling, a sphere in which God himself is pleased to live. I mean, isn't that what God has always done? God has always dwelled with his people. That's what happened in Eden. The Lord walked with Adam uh, before the tragedies of Genesis chapter 3. God came down on Sinai. God poured out his presence on the temple that Solomon constructed. And now, under the new covenant, God indwells his church. But I want, to, I want to close this morning by acknowledging that this, this text brought my mind to go down a path about a year ago. I think it was about a year ago when I was first studying this text. I went down a path where my mind had never gone before. It should have. Anyone privileged to give so much time and effort to the study of Scripture, uh, you could probably argue that he should have thought about this at some point in the past, but I had not. And here is what my mind began to think about and ask. What will be the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us, among us, 
in the age to come, in the coming age, in the new heavens and the new earth, the text says, dwelling place of God, living by his Spirit. What will the ministry of the Holy Spirit be in the age to come? I've often told the story of Pastor Ted Donnelly, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Northern Ireland. I was at a conference years ago, and Pastor Donnelly was preaching on the subject of heaven. And in preaching on heaven, I I wish I could do his marvelous Irish brogue perfectly, but in preaching on heaven... Pastor Donnelly said, when I was a boy, I did not want to go to heaven. Now, families are at this conference. You know, you could almost hear parents holding their breath. What's this man going to say? He said, it's true, it's true. When I was a boy, I did not want to go to heaven because I thought of heaven as one never-ending church service where everyone had to wear stiff white robes and sit on hard marble benches. It was most unattractive to an Irish boy. Do you ever do you ever wonder if heaven is going to be boring? I want you to turn to one more passage and read just a few verses with me in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, you'll find it on page 1140 of the Pew Bible. 1 Corinthians 15. And I want to read verses 42 to 44. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown, is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Now listen carefully. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, in the context, Paul is not saying that the resurrection body is non-physical. Was our Lord's resurrection body non-physical? He appears to the disciples and he says, Go ahead, touch my hands. Thomas, you, you, you said you won't believe. Okay, Thomas. Right there, touch, feel. And our resurrection bodies are going to be patterned after our Lord's. They will be spiritual bodies, that is, physical bodies, but bodies that are perfectly in tune with the realm and the reality of the Holy Spirit's work. Have you ever gotten down on your knees, Christian friend, wanting to pray about something. I mean, you had a need in your family, a need 
for a sick friend, a, a need in your congregation, and, and you decided, I'm, I'm going to really seek the Lord, I'm, I'm going to really pray about this, and you go to some private room, get down on your knees by yourself, and you start to pray, and you go to sleep. Am I the only Christian who's gone to sleep on his knees? I don't think so. You come sometimes to hear the exceptional sermons of Pastor Bob Smith, and you don't always stay completely alert in the pew. Why? Because these bodies of ours, they really are growing old and decaying, and they do not cooperate with the realm and the power of the Spirit. But the resurrection body will. Listen to Dr. Sinclair Ferguson in his marvelous book on the Holy Spirit. The energies of God, pardon me, the energies of God the Spirit are fully released in the resurrection body. Those who possess it consequently experience the end of inertia, the end of lethargy of the flesh. They experience, this is Dr. Ferguson's language, an ease in serving God to the full capacity of their being. Now, if our elder this morning, Ed Kappas, had come to the pulpit and said, we've come to worship God, and brothers and sisters, it's easy for us. <laughs> we're, we're going to be fully energized in our minds and our bodies, to give ourselves to the worship of God, we, we would have thought, Ed is getting carried away, isn't he? The day is coming. The day is coming when we will have that kind of energy, that kind of joy, and we will be so happy that by his grace, God has completed our redemption in Christ. Please join me to pray.